Welcome to Sports Mad Res's This Week in Review podcast, where we highlight the recent news in sports medicine research. Over the past week, we had two posts on sportsmedres.org. That's res.org. In the first post, we discussed a study where the authors reported that submaximal aerobic exercise may improve concussion symptoms, but not the return to activity timeline. Individualized interventions with cervical, vestibular, or ocular training may be beneficial for people with persistent symptoms. In the second post, we summarized an article where the authors reported that public secondary schools with lower socioeconomic status have less access to athletic trainers. This week, we invited the original authors of the second article, to discuss with Kyle Harris and myself their new findings. I'd like to welcome Drs. Eliza Barter, Eric Post, Lindsay Everman, and Matthew Rivera. Thanks everybody for joining us today. Eliza, I was wondering if you could kind of give us a brief overview of your paper. Yeah, absolutely. So um, our research was on differences in access to athletic trainers in public secondary school setting based on socioeconomic status. And our the purpose of our study is kind of exactly what the title was, is to identify if there were any differences in access um, in public secondary schools based on socioeconomic status. There had been a few papers prior to our study um, in st statewide papers uh, that Dr. Post was, I think, in a couple of them, um, done in Washington, Wisconsin, and California. But we wanted to look a little wider on a wider scale. So we looked at 3,000, around 3,500 high schools um, of varying poverty statuses in different states in the United States, so a total of 15. What we used to determine socioeconomic status was median household income and uh, free and reduced lunch information. So we actually got this information from different databases that already collected all of this data and brought it all together to determine there were differences. We used the ATLAS, um, the National Center for Education Statistics, um, and the U.S. Census Bureau. So what we found was that county median household income was greater in schools with more access, and we saw that same trend when we looked at free and reduced lunch. So schools that had a higher percentage of students that were on free and reduced lunch or eligible for free and reduced lunch, um, we saw that their percentage was higher in schools with less access to athletic training services. So um, we did find those socioeconomic disparities that were present in uh, athletic training services in the public secondary schools on a, a wider scale. Perfect. And I was wondering, you know, this is great data. I think this is really valuable data for the profession and for public health standpoint for athletic training. I was wondering if there are key take-home messages from kind of the organizational level, like what should um, the athletic training organizations, whether they be state uh, organizations, district, or national, what should they be thinking about based on um, these new findings? I think that um, it's important to kind of break this down to more of an individual level, as well as a um, more advocacy and bigger level 
Um, so on a more individual basis, kind of understanding those different healthcare disparities in the area of the patients that you're treating, um, kind of having a more patient-centered approach, um, paying attention to if there are any barriers that that patient might be getting into having the best care possible. Um, so it's being aware of those on more of an individual level. Um, for some people, athletic trainers are the only healthcare provider that they're able to see. Um, so I think it's really important more in that side of things to have that understanding. And then on a bigger, wider level, the actionable steps, um, I think research, lobbying efforts, um, media campaigns, and stakeholder education are kind of are the main takeaways is kind of actionable steps. There have been states that have funded pilot programs for athletic training. Um, the biggest thing always comes down to funding when it comes to athletic training in different settings. Does anybody else have anything they want to add on? I would say, yeah, like the big, one of the big keys for me that I was excited by Eliza's research is that now, okay, we saw that these disparities based on socioeconomic status existed on an individual state basis, right? And But you might say, maybe it's just something that's going on in this state. Um, but instead now this is more of that national, uh, a national database, you know, 15 states that were chosen to be representative based on socioeconomic status. And you see those same uh, disparities in access based on county median household income and based on percent free reduced lunch. So some of it is just starting to really raise that awareness uh, in the athletic training community that the same disparities we see across healthcare also exist within athletic training. I think it's also really important to think uh if we look at social media or sometimes we see some messaging um, across our profession, if you can't afford sport, then you shouldn't have an athletic trainer. But the problem with that is essentially eliminating exercise and physical activity as medicine. And so that kind of mentality is really harmful to the ideas that are attached to these findings. We, we need to find ways to access healthcare instead of minimizing physical activity and, and sport. I think that's a great point, Lindsay, and that was something I was going to ask your whole team about was, I think we consistently over time see within the profession, this notion of if you can't afford an AT, then you shouldn't have sports. Um, and I kind of wanted to get a sense from the four of you on how you I can see that um, messaging, what you how you counter that messaging, especially as you pointed out, Lindsay, the, desire of we don't want to reduce mechanisms of encouraging physical activity. And then I think, as Eliza, you pointed out too, it's not just having the athletic trainer there for sports, but it's also that might be the school's only access to the healthcare system, especially from a preventative point of view. Um, I was wondering if you could expand a little bit more on how we should push back and rethink the framework of, oh, if you can't afford an athletic trainer, you can't afford sports. I think one of the things is really considering what kind of sport and physical activity is helpful. So in many ways, um, we could modify or adjust athletic training services um, to consider part-time use or, or part-time employment. Although I do not believe that secondary school nurses are remotely uh, advantaged or recognized as healthcare providers within secondary school systems, they have been somewhat effective at delivering healthcare to multiple schools within the same system. And, and I think if you ask them, they would feel like the care they're providing is insufficient, but it is something 
that could service uh, different schools. So considering part-time athletic training services is one step, but also considering whether we need to be having high contact, high injury rate, uh, high catastrophic injury rate sports at all of our schools. I think we uh, consider those things a right instead of a luxury. And when we think about physical activity and sport, considering different kinds of sports and how we can encourage physical activity without necessarily increasing the risk for injury, uh, or other strategies school systems can consider if they're not able to immediately access an athletic trainer. Does anybody else want to? Yeah, I think this is something we talk about a lot. You know, I don't know if we have a good answer, right? Just uh, in terms of how to do this because it comes down to money. Um, but I think washing our hands and saying like, well, you don't have the money, you can't do it. Um, you don't get sports uh, too bad. is obviously not the right answer, right? We wouldn't say that about, you know, nutrition or uh, access to uh, other forms of healthcare, right? If you can't afford to see a primary care doctor, you don't get healthcare, sorry, you know. Um, unfortunately, that's the case uh, in a lot of ways, but none of us would agree with that statement, right? So why should we accept that within sports and within sports medicine and athletic training? Um, I think the big challenge now is we have all this data we're accumulating that show these disparities. Okay, what do we do? Um, how do we address those disparities? And I think that's kind of the next big question. Eric, that's a really good point. And the thing that really kind of caught my attention in, in doing this article and writing this up for, for SMR was I'm doing some work right now in education with first generation college students. And there's absolutely this, this linkage between socioeconomic status and access to good teachers and resources in schools. And that kind of, I saw that connection right away, you know, with my background in athletic training, I thought we're doing, the same things happening in education right now, right? We're raising this awareness that, you know, there are these disparities that exist and we're trying to address them in, in, in all different avenues. And this just really adds to how those disparities play out in, in many different ways. I think one of the things that I uh, think about when we consider access to athletic training, particularly in the secondary school setting, and Eliza talked about this earlier, being that athletic trainers could be the primary healthcare provider that some of these patients see. But if we think about health long-term and how health literacy and health behaviors and choices affect student health in the long-term and how they eventually can pass those behaviors down to their, their families, uh, this notion that if you, don't, if you don't have the money for an athletic trainer, then you shouldn't have the money for sport also have an impact where they might pick up poor health behaviors if they're not engaged in physical activity that could eventually have long-term health consequences. We're starting to see some literature, you know, we're producing some of this with access to athletic training, but there's a mountain of literature about sedentary lifestyles for children and poorer health outcomes. So it's about finding that, that balance and also, you know, this idea of uh, access to, to education and to high quality teaching. I think there's a similar line of thought with athletic trainers being able to help with health literacy and and showing student athletes positive health behaviors for uh, more positive health outcomes long term. Yeah, I think that's a great point about the athlete trainers and how they can have an effect on the long term wellness of the patients as well as the community overall. And I think we often forget to have that part of the conversation when we talk about the need for athlete trainers in the community that the athlete trainers could potentially save the community money if you reduce the number of major injuries like ACL by having somebody there that can help implement injury prevention programs or 
provide proper rehabilitation after a lateral ankle sprain, things like that, rather than having the, somebody go down a path towards chronic ankle instability. So I think we often focus in our healthcare system on the short-term costs of something rather than the long-term financial picture of how bringing in an athletic trainer could actually save the community money in the long run. I think there's often a discussion too, when we talk about the role of socioeconomic status and um, diversity and inclusiveness and stuff like that in sports, there's often a heavy emphasis on identifying the problem, but then there's a kind of a, where, what do we do from there? And I was wondering if you have seen or have thought about like, what's the intervention that we need to start thinking about testing to see if we can actually change what's happening in the community? Well, there's lots to be said here. I'll let Eliza speak up in just a moment. The first thing we need to be doing is measuring our outcomes as athletic trainers to show value and how we can actually contribute and improve the health of communities. Our biggest challenge as a profession is that we have failed to show our value to the organization, not just in the short term and whether we can help somebody resolve that ankle sprain or ACL, but in the long term. So we have a lot of work to do to uh, contribute to the volume of data that's out there about the value of an athletic trainer. But I would agree with you 100 uh, percent. And it's not just in interventions. We have not done a very good job in our athletic training research in doing more than exposing problems. We have not done sufficient work in identifying and engaging and evaluating interventions. And I think you'll see from, from our lab more and more work that focuses on different interventions, both to change athletic trainer provider behavior, but also um, patient behavior. Uh, and that's something we were really dedicated to uh, in, in our kind of research agenda as a group. I think that question was the hardest part about writing this paper in the, in the first place. I think um, I was actually really struggling at first to kind of figure out what the solution was. And that was the biggest challenge of this paper was coming up with different solutions. Um, with the research that was out there, I mean, athletic trainers do reduce emergency room visits. And on average, an emergency room visit is around $2,000. And so I do think that there is some stuff we can do. I think one of the barriers we have is that legislators don't know what athletic trainers are. Um, there was a study done that um, legislative or uh, they asked legislators if who would be the appropriate person to treat an ankle sprain in a high school setting and athletic trainers were not even on their radar. They did not think that we were fit to handle that injury. And so I think still there's a lack of knowledge within legislators um, who have the possibility to create funding for athletic training. Um, so funding is definitely an issue. I think even increasing telemedicine services might be a solution to the problem. I think with COVID, the expansion of telemedicine, I think people have come, become a little bit more comfortable with that. Um, maybe not in an emergency setting, but um, for more of an acute injury, uh, I think telemedicine would be a great opportunity to expand access as well. Yeah, I think I, I agree with everything that you, you've said, and I, I think that that was one of the really cool components of reading this article and, and getting ready to write it up, was just looking at all of these different levels that, you know, we as athletic trainers and just as people in, in our own communities interact with. You know, I have younger children, but I have children who are involved in sports. 
I'm working with, you know, state level professional organizations. Each role is each group is going to play a different role, but those roles are really important to to actually address the root of this issue because I don't think any one of them is going to truly get it done by itself. And how much do you think that some of this comes down to the way we're educating our athletic trainers at the most basic level of thinking from a public health policy and how do you engage with a stakeholder? Because some of this is stakeholder engagement and how to educate parents, administrators, legislators about this. Yeah, so as you asked that previous question, I was actually thinking about this from a perspective of us as athletic trainers, what can we do versus trying to get what uh, help from others? And I think um, we're starting to see this, but I think on a bigger scale, we have to continue to see ourselves as a profession, as healthcare providers, and not within the sport industry itself. Uh, because I think some of this disparity comes in when we think about providing care to uh, athletics based on however we want to say hierarchy of sport versus who actually needs care or maybe what communities in our area are under-resourced and maybe we need to put athletic trainers there rather than at the, the larger schools that have more sport participation like we were talking about earlier. So I think part of this the solution is actually a mindset shift or a continued mindset shift for us as a profession and to continue to see ourselves as healthcare and not as athletics. But I echo that. I also think, uh, and this might feel like I'm taking things in a, in a weird direction, but a lot of athletic training education programs are having a very hard time with recruitment right now and enrollment. And one of the strategies they could do is really highlight their emphasis on, say, rural healthcare or secondary school athletic training, where the intention is to recruit students who actually want to work in secondary school settings and enrich their communities by way of um, training and maybe even having advanced skills in primary care and being a patient advocate within the healthcare system or doing telemedicine as a result of rural healthcare. So I actually think from a program administrator perspective, I could try to adopt that kind of mentality in my recruitment approach, because then I'm producing cohorts of 12 to 20 students per year with that ultimate goal of serving those communities. So um, it's not just what we're teaching them in the classroom, because I think the new curricular content standards really get at social determinants of health, uh, healthcare disparity, um, as well as health disparity, but it's also a mindset shift on how do I shape my program in a way that encourages people to see value of, of that role as a healthcare provider in secondary schools, which I think you know, goes to, to Matt's point exactly. We have to see ourselves as healthcare providers. And I think unfortunately, we still propagate the idea that the highest quality athletic trainers work in the most elite sports. And I think all of us can agree, there's no evidence to support that. Um, that kind of thinking. So if we can really show people the value of athletic trainers in a secondary school setting and then promote that as a niche, people will start to raise excitement about working in those settings. Yeah, and I think that kind of self-perpetuates too, because if programs start to incorporate that and teach students, you know, the value of the athletic trainer as a community healthcare provider, then those students are able to better advocate you know, as they're taking those positions and taking those, looking for those positions, they're better able to advocate for their value, right? And they have that kind of background of, I'm not just here to 
provide coverage on Friday nights. I'm not just here to, you know, do some of those core skills uh, that may have been highly valued in the past, right? I'm here to be a community healthcare provider and improve the health of this population at this secondary school. Um, I'm also going to go ahead and plug the Indiana State Doctorate in Athletic Training Program, which did a great job of helping me um, get to where I am and understand and help create solutions to these problems that we have in athletic training. They did a great job of just educating this information and talking about different ways where we can be leaders and, ad and advocates for our patients in a multitude of ways, whether that be individual or um, on a bigger level. Yeah, I think that I think that what's going on right now in terms of the, our education programs extends even beyond that, too, because we're, we're creating an environment now where we're starting to show these positive outcomes from two clinicians that have been practicing for a very, very long time and maybe aren't as familiar with, you know, a medical model versus an athletic model. And so to start to put people into communities with that focus and start to see those positive impacts. I think we could also see a, a ripple effect into people that are already in the profession and are already practicing and maybe don't have an awareness of the impact that they could actually have just by changing a few things in their current setting. I also think there's huge opportunity for us to expand and actually fulfill our, our vision of being prevention specialists. We have talked a lot about that in athletic training, that that's what we want to be known for. But in fact, we are doing secondary and tertiary prevention. And the idea of community health is more primary primary prevention focused. And we have an opportunity there to um, actually prevent injury before it, before it happens. I think it goes back to, I can't remember who said it earlier, like the difference between being on a sideline for emergency care versus being embedded in a community to prevent long-term health issues. I think that's a great point that, you know, among all the healthcare professions, we're one of the ones that really highlights our role in prevention. And yet, when you look at the prevent primary prevention things we can do, most of them are still sitting on the sidelines, not being used. I mean, primary injury prevention for lower extremities probably only used by 20% or so of coaches in the country. And yet we know it can prevent over 50% of lower extremity injuries. So it shows that we're not implementing what we think is actually one of our core things that makes us unique and special to the community. But Jeff, to that point, right, it, it, prevention is something that traditionally has been a little bit more difficult to measure. And that's where we're getting back to the education component. Why I think that's so important to start to, to do and understand even more is, is how to do that. There's a lot of athletic trainers that struggle with how to, you know, talk about prevention because it's, it's a lot less tangible than supplies that are going out or injuries that are coming in to be seen. And I think that that's an element there that is being addressed in, in a much more effective way than it ever has before. So I want to be mindful of everybody's time. Normally, I would ask for one take-home message, but I feel like this is a topic that kind of has a few take-home messages, perhaps for different people. So I was wondering if you could kind of give three take-home messages. One that's directed towards the educator and administrator, a second that's kind of targeted to the researcher, and then one for the clinician. Um, and as briefly as possible with that task, but I was wondering if you guys could kind of tackle that. I'd take a crack at the researcher take-home point, if, uh, if that sounds good. I think we've talked about it already. You know, we have these 
this kind of accumulating evidence of these disparities, right? And we've talked about this within our group is do we continue to try to, you know, build on this with an additional study that looks at maybe some more disparities or a wider net of states or whatever that might be. But I think the message and out in the research world should be, all right, we've identified the problem, like we talked about, we're really good at identifying problems, but now let's start to evaluate what we can do, what are the interventions that we can um, implement, you know, disseminate, whatever, and then study the result and see if it's effective or not at increasing access. I think also on the research side of things, um, we did, as a secondary purpose, um, investigate the differences in access to athletic training services based off of race and ethnicity. Um, but we, we kind of found that our methods might have been flawed in finding those results because um, they were based off of SES. So maybe sampling um, states based off of racial diversity to provide a more representative sample um, might be another research opportunity. I think for the clinician uh, who reads this paper and asks themselves, like, how does this affect me in my daily care? I think the biggest thing that we would say is the first step is understanding the patients that you work with more in depth and understanding the community that you're in. Um, you know, we, we're hearing more and more about the social determinants of health. So actually taking some time to, to educate yourself on the patient's uh, circumstances that you work with and understanding all the different factors that influence the, their health outcomes aside from just their sport participation or injury that's, uh, you know, they're dealing with at that time is a step that, that clinicians themselves can take uh, to help advance this. And I think briefly for educators, we really need to do a better job of enforcing the role of athletic training or athletic trainers as healthcare providers, particularly in these secondary school settings, really maximizing our, our understanding of the social determinants of health and how they impact access to healthcare and access to education are pretty big indicators of somebody's long-term uh, health-related quality of life. And so making sure that we're accessible as athletic trainers within these communities, but also knowledgeable of how adverse childhood events can impact the ways in which our patients access us, as well as the, the engagement and adherence to um, athletic training services. I, I think sometimes we get really frustrated about patients not uh, continuing care but in many ways, we need to consider our role in that versus the patients um, for the misuse of the term non-compliance. It's really about trying to find strategies to decrease resistance to the use of athletic trainers within the communities when they are available. And then obviously to administrators, reprioritize. If you're going to consider having a particularly high contact, high risk sport, then you really need to consider that healthcare, access to healthcare is, is a non-negotiable. Great. Thanks uh, to the four of you for joining us today. I think the study is a key study. I hope it, a lot of people read it and take uh, note of it and start thinking about their community, but also the communities around them that may be lacking athletic training services and how they can be reached within um, utilizing their own network or reaching out to their state organization or district organizations to also try and address those gaps. Um, I think this is a great line of research and I'm glad to hear that you're thinking not just about how to better describe the problem, but also what's the next step in the solution. Um, so I want to commend all of you for the great work and I'm looking forward to seeing the future projects that come out of this line of uh, work. So thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Thank sure. you. Don't forget. 
that we also share extra material on social media. And if you're an athletic trainer who's looking for evidence-based practice CEUs, then please check out our nine evidence-based courses available through the Human Kinetics website. We will have links to our summaries and the courses on our website and in the show notes. Remember, you can always follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We'll be back next week with more sports medicine research. Until then, have a fun one.